One of the greatest gifts that you can give to a loved one is asking them what they want at the end of life and trying to get that for them. How can peer-to-peer connection make a healthier society? Can Amazon reviews give us fresh insight into our health? Why do online patient communities represent an incredible untapped resource in healthcare? And how can a co-designed death give us a fuller life? Susanna Fox will help us answer these questions and so much more. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Susanna Fox, who is a health and information technology researcher based in Washington, D.C. She is a former chief technology officer for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She served during the Obama administration, where she led an open data and innovation lab. Prior to the federal service, she was the entrepreneur in residence at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. For 14 years, she directed the health portfolio at Pew Research Center's Internet Project, where she helped to find a new market at the intersection of health, social media, and patient engagement. Susanna currently serves on the board of directors of Cambia Health Solutions of Portland, Oregon, and Hive Networks of Cincinnati, Ohio. She is an advisor to Ella Adapt Immunotherapeutics, Archangels, Article 27, Atlas of Caregiving, Before Brand, Citizen, Equip Health, Fast Secures, and, and the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at Smithsonian Institution. Susanna is a graduate of Wellesleyan University with a degree in anthropology. She's the mother of two children, a caregiver for elders, and lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Eric Halpern. If you haven't done so already, sign up for our newsletter. You're not going to want to miss it. You can sign up at bit.ly forward slash design lab newsletter. Each week you'll find links to articles and other cool stuff. Follow us on Twitter at Design Lab Pod, and there on the top of the account, you will find a link to our newsletter. Remember, the best way to support this show is to go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, give us five stars, and even better, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my conversation with Susanna Fox. Susanna Fox, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so stoked that you're on the show. Glad to be here. You didn't know this, but when I first met you at Stanford, I was so nervous meeting you because I am such a fanboy. And it was like meeting a rock star for me. So I was like very nervous when I first met you. That is true geekiness. The idea that I, a researcher, would be a rock star to you. But thank you. 100%. And you have so many cool titles. You know, you have been called the Princess Leia Jedi Master of Health Tech and an internet geologist. Let's start off with the internet geologist. What is that? Oh, I love this story. So Paul Torini, who is a program officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, overheard me trying to describe what I do. And he stopped me and said, I know what you do. You are an internet geologist. You look for patterns in the landscape and you can make predictions about what's going to happen. And you don't judge whether it's a good or a bad thing. You just stick to the facts and tell us what the truth is. And I loved that description because that is really what I want to do. I just want to tell people 
um, what the truth is about what people are doing online and how it's affecting society, especially healthcare. What I often say is another title that I really love is that I'm an ambassador from the future. And I'm not here to, to tell you whether it's right or wrong. I'm just here to tell you what is going to happen. And you can make your plans based on what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so many cool titles. I love that. You have been busy this past year. You are writing a book that's going to be published in 2023 by MIT Press. And it's a book on the role that peer health advice plays at every level of our healthcare system. Can you uh, tell us um, a little bit more about the book and what inspired you to write this book? Yeah. So tentative title is The Patient-Led Revolution. And I, for 20 years, have been following patients. And the best way to describe the work that I did early in my research was to do the encouragement of Tom Ferguson, who was my mentor, I went into patient communities like an anthropologist would and just spent time listening and learning from people who were living with rare diseases, life-changing diagnoses, people living with disability of all kinds, because they were the people who were hacking healthcare. They were living in the future. And I would observe how they were using technology and then do uh, public opinion surveys, national surveys to measure whether that was really unusual or whether that was becoming more common. And one of the first things that I saw was the importance of peer-to-peer -peer connection, that people were navigating the healthcare system better if they found other people like them. So when you say peer-to-peer -peer health advice, that doesn't mean ignoring the advice of doctors, is it? Like replacing it? Not at all. So peer-to-peer -peer healthcare is pro-social, not anti-science. And when I coined the term peer-to-peer -peer healthcare many years ago, I was very mindfully referring to peer-to-peer -to -peer technology, that, that the old way of setting up a computer network was the client-server network. And that also reflects the old way that healthcare information was given to people, that it was the doctor at the top of the pyramid, a clinician at the top of the pyramid, giving the, you know, allowing the health information to trickle down to patients, not acknowledging that patients and caregivers have information that they could be sharing with each other. Well, just like the internet exploded the client server model of networking, the internet also exploded that pyramid. It flipped the pyramid so that now we see that patients and caregivers know things about themselves and can now share those things, trade them, write about them, make podcasts about them, make sure that other people can learn what they know. Can you give us an example of how that peer-to-peer -peer health advice works in a particular like community or a patient that you have met or talked with? Yeah. So one of my favorite examples is in diabetes. So insulin-dependent diabetes affects millions of Americans and continuous glucose monitor is not right for everybody, but people have to figure out day-to-day -day how to live with this condition. 
that unfortunately creates a constant math problem for them where they have to consider what they eat, how they exercise, how they sleep. There's all kinds of intangibles that can affect their blood glucose levels. And the diabetes community, once they were able to connect with each other, were able to trade tips that no clinician would be able to give them about how to manage their condition. Um, what I love is that the diabetes community illustrates the, the full stack of what I'm talking about in my book, which is when you're first diagnosed, you're dropped into the healthcare maze. You don't know what's going on. You feel alone, even if you're diagnosed with something common. And you start searching for anyone and anything that can help you. That's when you're at the searcher stage. If you're lucky, and more and more because of the internet, people are getting lucky, you are connecting to other people like you, other people with diabetes, for example. Then something magic happens. Somebody says, I've got an idea. I have an idea for, for example, breaking into my son's continuous glucose monitor to get access to the data, which is what John Costick did. And from that, they created Night Scout, which has revolutionized people with diabetes who use continuous glucose monitors to actually have access to the data in real time, which solves really significant problems. Something basic like letting your kid go on a school field trip without worrying about them you, because you can see it on your Apple Watch that they're doing okay. Mm. That's the kind of innovation that can only happen because patients were connecting together. I love that example of the diabetes community and Rob, the producer of Design Lab, he himself has insulin-dependent diabetes. So he has a, a continuous glucose uh, monitor and insulin pump. And we were just talking the other day, his frustrations uh, behind that. But I've learned so much from about diabetes through him and his experience as a patient, more so than I do as a physician. You just have this different lens of it because he is the expert of disease and he's a pharmacist too. And there's, I was I'm always surprised by how much I learned just by hanging out with Rob as a friend. Yeah. And I learn a lot from patients about the realities of their lives that we could never know. Sarah Rigger is another e-patient that I've learned from. She um, had early onset uh, Parkinson's. She lives in Sweden and she has a wonderful graphic, which shows that she only spends about one hour every year with her neurologist. And I think it's 765 hours that she spends caring for herself. Mm. That's the reality of anybody who's living with a chronic condition. Um, by the way, that's also, it's, it's not just chronic and, and rare conditions that we're talking about. This could be something where it really makes a difference if you meet somebody, let's say you have a hand injury because you've had a, an accident or, or something happened and it's a temporary disability. To connect with other people who have had that temporary disability is really important because they can tell you about products that you can buy or borrow to just make your life easier. I run a medical device program. And so we pair industrial design students with medical students and they uh, look for problem areas in medicine and how to create a device. And one of the best ways for them to get data, I tell them, is to go to these patient communities, often like to Facebook, for example, 
And that's like their initial inspiration for device design. For example, this past year, a team worked on a glove stabilizer for patients with essential tremors. And another team was working on a more comfortable neck collar for patients with cervical spine instability. But for them to get their inspiration, they went online to these patient communities first, saw what hacks that they were doing, and really learned a lot. They, they got, you could get a tremendous amount of data that way. Well, I'll give you another idea. You know, one of the favorite things that I've been doing in my field work this year in preparation for the book is going on Amazon and looking at the pop-up health communities that happen in Amazon reviews. What? Oh, yeah. It's incredible. The advice that people are giving about something pretty mundane like a pillbox uh-huh. or, you know, compression socks. You can look at the top 10 products in any health category on Amazon and start reading the reviews. And people are giving incredible feedback on the design for those medical devices and and products that they're using to make their lives better. And that's why I think peer-to-peer healthcare is so much more powerful and widespread than a lot of people in the C-suite of healthcare understand right now because people are just doing this because they have to. They're figuring out how to trade ideas and trade tips the only way that they can. I have to tell you another one that I love if your students are looking for other sources of insight is subreddits. There are some incredible subreddits on all kinds of conditions like, there, what, what do you mean by subreddit? Like Reddit, the, so, the website? So Reddit, yeah. So Reddit, uh-huh. the website, and then, you know, there'll be you know, subreddit communities that are focused on, as you know, all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite studies was published in JAMA a couple of years ago that focused on RSTD. Mm-hmm. And it's about sexually transmitted infection. And researchers looked at how quickly people were able to get actionable, accurate advice about a suspected STI, it was really quick. Mm. I think it was four hours that people were able to get actionable information. Well, you can't get to a clinic that fast. You can't necessarily get an appointment. And so people are connecting online in ways that are unexpected and very useful to them. So Susanna, you are a Jedi master and you know there's a dark side of the force. And then is there a dark side to -to peer-to-peer health advice? There absolutely is a dark side and that is misinformation. And we're seeing the ravages of misinformation during this pandemic where people are misunderstanding the science. They're willfully creating disinformation campaigns about the safety of vaccine and even the safety of, of being indoors, knowing that this thing is spreading indoors. Yeah. And it's the danger is shared air. And so that stuff is spread peer-to-peer. So the good stuff, the good information, the valid information is spread peer-to-peer as well as the, the bad stuff. What I would say is, We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. People are doing this no matter what. And so how might we give people the tools that they need to sift for the valid information? How might we give people the tools that they need to, for example, downvote misinformation and disinformation to recognize 
when someone is being anti-science so that people can defend themselves against that threat. Hmm. And you talk about this model that you're developing around pure health communities. And it's in a, such a cool article that you wrote for Harvard Business Review. It's called How Chronic Disease Patients Are Innovating Together Online. So you published that in, I think, 2020. So that's a sneak peek for those of us who can't wait till next year to read your book. So yeah. can you talk about what that pure health innovation pipeline is? Well, I have to give a shout out to some friends. I was part of a challenge group where friends who were meeting to challenge each other to push themselves further in their careers. And it was my friends, Jody Ferrier and Lori Strongen, who said, we're tired of hearing you talk about how you want to write a book. We want to see you write an article, pick your favorite business magazine and pitch an article to them. And so I did. My favorite business magazine is Harvard Business Review. I couldn't believe it when they accepted it. It's super influential. <laughs> yeah, I loved working with the editor. And yeah, it was fun to put together these ideas that I've been talking about and writing research papers about for so long to put it into this actionable business context of if you are a healthcare leader who wants to get into the opportunity that's presented to all of us of peer-to-peer healthcare, here's what to look for. You need to look for people who are gathering naturally. They're, they're already gathering together to solve problems. And if you can gain people's trust and find out what they need from them, whoever you are, whether you're a hospital administrator, whether you run a health insurance company, whether you run a device company, there are so many opportunities to be a champion. And that's the fourth stage of what I'm writing about. You start as a searcher, you maybe become a connector and an innovator. And the, the final stage is finding people with resources who can help mm. you. And, and my message to the C-suite of healthcare is learn how to be a champion for peer health innovators. And you talk about these patient communities are a, really an untapped resource of incredible knowledge that companies can work with these communities to innovate in healthcare, right? What, what's an example going into the future of what that might look like? Well, I think about people, for example, who are recently discharged from the hospital. So it's in everybody's interest. It's in, it's in the health insurance industry's interest, whether it's Medicare or private health insurance, to keep them well. It's also in the hospital's best interest because they don't want to get them bounced back into their system. And so how might we make sure that people who are recently discharged from the hospital understand their medications? How might we make sure that they really understand the importance of doing maybe the exercises that have been assigned to them? How might we make sure that their caregiver has the support that they need? Well, peer-to-peer healthcare is one way that, that people can do this. If patients are connected with each other, if you can connect with someone who's just ahead of you on the path, maybe someone who was discharged a year ago and successfully navigated their recovery, if we can pair those people together or connect them with a group of people they'll be more likely to answer their questions in the middle of the night, 
patients are more likely to ask what they think of as stupid questions of fellow patients. I've heard stories of people who were hesitant to call their doctor on a Sunday morning, even though they were having complications because they didn't want to interrupt their doctor's mm -hmm. weekend. When in fact, what they really just needed, they needed that quick answer of, yes, take your baby back to the hospital. And a peer-to-peer -peer group can be the support that currently the healthcare system doesn't acknowledge. Mm -hmm. It's so hard for a patient to get in touch with their doctor, even talking to my colleagues and friends uh, who are doctors and when they have an acute medical problem or a chronic medical problem, they want to get in touch with their doctor. They have to back channel it, you know, that, and I just, and for those who don't have, you know, the 99% of people don't have that sort of access. That's incredibly frustrating. It is. And what studies also show is that there are a lot of questions that actually don't rise to the level of needing to be asked by a clinician that really can be answered by a fellow patient or a fellow caregiver. And, you know, for example, I recently wrote a post about injection tips. You know, if you have to do injections, you might get trained one time by a clinician, but you what, get what, home, what type of injections, like insulin injections or all kinds of injections. Uh, so, so I was writing it on behalf of a friend of mine who's starting fertility treatments. Mm. So you have to do daily injections to get ready for that. And she was naturally pretty nervous about it. Not somebody who has a lot of experience with needles. And so there's the training that you get from a nurse or a doctor when you get all of your materials and stuff. But then there's the real truth of the moment where you're home, you're alone, maybe you have your partner there and you guys are faced with that needle. It's a peer patient who might give you the tip that you need of how to handle that situation. Or patients are also more likely to say, I know why you should keep going. This is really hard to stay on this medication. But as a patient, I can tell you, if you get to the other side, you're going to really be glad that you did. Mm -hmm. And you wrote that on your blog. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And Susanna has one of the best blogs out there. It's still active. You can find it at SusannaFox.com. And thank you for just so many inspirational pieces in your blog. You had written about your experience as a caregiver. And I love your blog posts about how you co-design a care relationship with one of your relatives. Can you describe that experience? Thank you. Yes. So I was a caregiver for three grandparents and my dad. And I like to say that I was an apprentice to my mom, who is a master caregiver. She is uh, someone who's very experienced at caring for people. And when it came time for me to sit first chair, it was with an elder cousin. And it sounds pretty random, our relationship. <laughs> so um, his name was Mitsuru. He was born in Japan and came to the United States to attend Berkeley for graduate school and ended up falling in love with my first cousin twice removed. So that means she was my grandmother's cousin. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So they fell in love in the 60s and got married and ended up settling in Princeton, New Jersey. That's where I grew up. And so Anne and Mitsu were like a third set of grandparents to me, just to sort of level set who they were. And that's a pretty unusual relationship for the 60s for a Japanese man to marry a white woman. Yeah, it was. Yeah, no, we're talking about, you know, this was not long after World War II. There was, you know, in the during the Vietnam era, there was a lot of racism and they were a wonderful couple. I just want to say they were musicians and was a pioneering female computer scientist. They both loved math and logic games and they were just the coolest people. I, I honestly couldn't believe that I was related to such cool people. (laughs) <laughs> um, and happily they took to me too and sadly they did not have any children they wanted children they, they did not have any surviving children and passed away in 2014 and Mitsu decided to stay in the U.S. and not go back to Japan to be with his um, brothers and sisters and nieces and so at that time he realized that he was alone and that he had a wide circle of friends, but he didn't have anybody who would be his person, mm. meaning the healthcare proxy, you know, power of attorney, executive of his estate, all the stuff that a daughter would do for him. And just a side note that it might sound familiar to some people because of the phrase elder orphan. It's a growing phenomenon in the United States and and probably all around the world that there are more and more people who are going into their elder years single. And some are by choice, um, some are because their spouse passed away. And there are a lot of elders who also don't have children. So I think that it's an opportunity for people to build towards a social system that allows for people to connect with each other in unusual ways. So just that was like a um, sidebar. So when Mitsu asked me to be his care partner, I took it really seriously. I He he asked you that? Yes. That's a big ask. So it is a really big ask. I, I I was so honored to be asked. And... My friend Alex Drain talks about how these conversations about caregiving should be as important and beautiful as a marriage proposal or as asking someone to be your child's godparent. There should be this sense of ceremony around asking someone to be your caregiver. And I think that's true whether it's your mom or dad or the widower of your grandmother's first cousin. (laughs) And and so I actually met him in person. Um, I drove up to Princeton and sat with him in his living room and said yes. And I actually put my hands together and bowed very deeply in the Japanese style to say it's my honor to do this. He was really touched and I actually took that opportunity to then say, but you have to promise me something. You have to promise to let me help. Because he was a healthy 86-year-old who was living alone, extremely independently, bicycling to Quaker meeting, bicycling to the grocery store. (laughs) And 
he was not one to generally accept any help. And so I said, you have and to let us, me help. Us older Asian males were very stubborn. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> so, um, so, so we entered into that with an agreement that, that, that he would let me help. And the very first thing that I did, I realized also before that meeting, I sort of looked at this situation and I said, I need to find an intimacy hack. How do I get to a point where this person who's been like an uncle to me all my life, how can I get to a place where I really understand what, what he wants out of the end of life? And so we talked about death during that first meeting. I actually brought with me um, the five questions about the end of life that are part of Engage with Grace, which was started by Alex Drain to start these conversations about what people want. And it was really intense. Mitsuru and I had never talked about death, but it was so important to start with that, even though he didn't get sick for a few more years. Mm-hmm. That, so that's my advice to people is to create some ceremony, but also have in mind like ways that you can level up a relationship very quickly. Mm-hmm. For those of us who may go, gosh, that's such a hard conversation to have. What was their reaction like? Was Mitsu saying, why are we talking about this? How do you overcome these like social and cultural barriers around not talking about death? Because we live in a society that thinks we're going to live forever. And to have that sort of hard conversation. What I have found is that people, when given the opportunity are happy to talk about it because it is a quiet fear that our wishes are not going to be honored, that we are not going to get what we want. And I've had these conversations now with multiple loved ones and it is a little scary, which is why Alex started the program Engage with Grace to make it really simple. It's just five questions. And each question is on the scale of one to five. And what was really lovely is that Mitsu was somebody who was very clear about what he wanted. And because of that, when the time came, I was able to clear his path. I was able to defend him from the doctors in the hospital who Mm. wanted to keep him (laughs) when it was time to go we broke out of there like we were outlaws and he was so happy that I was there to fight for him. And it's scary doing that because we have medicalized death so much in this country that you feel, did you feel like you were having to go against like the medical establishment and authority by doing that? I did right on the last day, we were actually meeting with the palliative care consult and filling out the post form and filling out the discharge papers. And he had been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Mm -hmm. He went over the cancer waterfall and it happened very quickly. It was the summer of 2020. And at that time we were being really careful about the virus. And my husband and I would drive up to Princeton and have lunch with him in his garden. But for safety reasons, we weren't going into his house. And we didn't really see that he was kind of getting thinner and, and weaker. Mm-hmm. And so by the time it was found that he had esophageal cancer, it was too late to do anything. 
in the hospital, they also, of course, he's in, you know, at that point was, you know, almost 88 years old and he had all kinds of other things going on. And so the cardiac consult was trying to, you know, push their way into the room and somebody else was trying to take blood. And I essentially stood in the doorway and said, no, nobody's going to come in here. We're leaving. And I felt super empowered because Mitsu and I had this conversation uh, those few years ago about what he wanted and nothing will stop me. If it's for my children, if it's for my loved one, nothing will stop me. If I'm sure about what they want, nothing will stop me yeah. from, from getting it from them. But it was hard because the, the cardiac consult really wanted to come in. <laughs> and my experience being on the other side as a clinician in these end of life moments is that 99% of the time, family and friends of the patient and the patient themselves are not prepared and they yeah. have not had those conversations. So there's confusion. So maybe it's a daughter who says, do everything. And then the son says, well, that's not what mom wanted. And then a cousin comes in and the wife has a different perspective and there's confusion there. It's very chaotic. And so the medical authority ends up winning out and we do let the cardiac consult come in. We do try to do everything medically possible. And then the medicalization of death happens and the patient's wishes, because those weren't expressed so clearly are, it doesn't happen. It's one of the greatest gifts that you can give to a loved one is asking them what they want at the end of life and trying to get that for them. Be it whatever they want, by the way. If you want to go all out and do every medical intervention possible, I would have been there for that. But Mitsuru wanted to die at home peacefully. And so I sprung him from the hospital, got him home. And, and just as we had co-designed our partnership, we co-designed the home hospice. Mm. And that was, I, I want to give also a shout out to a home health aide who was there for us. I was so, so honored to be able to work with Aiken Care Services. They had helped care for my dad when my dad was hospitalized and passed away in 2017. And they sent wonderful home health aides to help me and there was one, Moodaline, who came with us. She was there when we came home. And she essentially gave me a shopping list. And I told her that I would back her startup of setting up home hospice. <laughs> because she knew exactly what we needed, how many towels, how many sheets. She said, you need to buy this and this. And we bustled around while Mitsuru just lay peacefully in the hospital bed, looking out at his garden. And then all of a sudden it was peaceful hmm. and silence turned out to be something that Mitsuru really wanted. Hmm. And you can only know that if you've asked the person. And again, it's all about listening to the person in the bed. The person who is at the center of that situation was Mitsuru. Hmm. And so how do we make sure that Mitsuru is having 
the best day possible and has what he wants and he needs. And you wrote about what you learned from that experience are two daily tasks that was on top of mind. Can you talk about those daily tasks? Yeah. So the the first and foremost was I would ask myself every day, does Mitsu feel safe and is he safe? So that was overarching everything. Does he feel safe and is he safe? And then if that was taken care of, then I looked for ways to create an opportunity for connection. And that meant he had a a list of people that he wanted to say goodbye to. And so we had a daily call back to Japan at 8 a.m. East Coast U.S. time. And he got to say goodbye to his siblings and his nieces and to his best friend from growing up which was incredibly Mm -hmm. moving. The second thing that I tried to do every day was to create a moment of delight, to create Mm -hmm. an opportunity for joy. And again, that could be something like refilling the bird feeder and just seeing all of the birds swarming the bird feeder. Or since it was summertime, one day I brought in some basil from his garden and a fresh tomato from his garden. And he couldn't really eat anymore, but he could smell the tomato and smell the basil. Hmm. And I also, you know, tried to be a student of of other people who have created home hospice or, or clinical situations that are beautiful. And so I took inspiration from Yoko Sen, who talks about what is the last sound that you want to hear? What is the sound that you want at the end of life? And for me too, it was silence and bird song. And also I read to him from the book that he was reading. This is just a funny story that, that he was such an intellectual. When he was hospitalized, I called him and said, what do you want me to bring to the hospital? I'm going to stop by your house. What, what would you like? Thinking that maybe robe, slippers, you know, something practical like that. And he said, please bring me my reading glasses and my copy of Proust. And it's Swan's Way in Japanese. And that's what he wanted. Mm. So, so he wanted his Proust. Mm. And so I went out and got a copy of it in English and would read to him every day just to create that moment of delight. And as I'm hearing this story as a physician, that's some guiding principles I could do with my patients. I mean, it's a little bit hard when the ER is chaotic, but you know, having that, can I make that connection? Can I create a moment of joy? And I'm thinking of a guest that we had on before, Dr. BJ Miller. So I'm sure you're familiar with BJ's work, but he talks about when he had this horrific accident, you know, he was electrocuted, was in the ICU for months. And one moment of joy was when a nurse had brought in a snowball and for him, that just created this simple moment of joy, um, being in this really hostile, chaotic ICU, but to have that connection to nature. And, you know, he was bandaged up with full body burns, but that nurse was able to make that connection and create a moment of joy for him. I have to confess that I watched BJ's TED Talk every morning before I started my day with Mitsuru because it was so inspiring to see BJ talk about how we need to live until we die. And again, you have no idea 
what the person in the bed is going to want until it happens and what is actually going to bring them joy. One of the other things that brought me through joy, which was very unexpected for me, was when he asked me to help him resign from his last peer review for a math journal. He was in the middle Wait, of the he was review. still doing that at his age? Yes. I stopped doing that like years ago. <laughs> he was such a scholar. He really was a scholar. And this was, I still have the text of the email because it was so metal. It was like, I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I must resign from this review. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> as soon as we hit send, Mitsuru's smile was like we were boarding a plane for Hawaii. It was the broadest grin that I had seen in a long time because he had such a sense of responsibility for that last review. And to be able to resign from it was incredibly important to him. It was as important, it seemed to me, as saying goodbye to friends and family. And again, that was unexpected. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know that would be important to him. Mm. It's a struggle to think about how to co-design caregiving and and end-of-life care. And on one of your blog posts, you had mentioned a very kind of frustrating weekend when you couldn't get another syringe. And you were basically by yourself for a weekend. And that inspired you to design a hospice kit for people who have to be in that situation. Can you talk about that? Yes. When, when someone comes home from the hospital on hospice, they are a hospice agency will show up and do an intake evaluation of the person. And you will also receive what's called a comfort kit. And one aspect of the comfort kit that I think is really smart design is that they tell people to keep it in the refrigerator, not necessarily because the medications need to stay cold, but because then in an emergency, everybody knows where it is. It's in the refrigerator. Everybody has one refrigerator generally. And this was my first time doing home hospice. So I didn't know that you were going to have to use this one syringe over and over If I had known that, I would have gone out and gotten more syringes in advance. And the training that I received was very rudimentary. And again, that's fine because I had my mom as a peer mentor who was coaching me. I want to say that's really important to the story, again, because if you don't have anybody else in your life who has sat with death and you are faced with this, I urge you to use whatever network you can to find people who have ushered someone out of this life Mm -hmm. because it really is an experience like no other. Mm -hmm. And so when the time came and Mitsuru was in distress and it was time to administer the morphine, we only had the one syringe and we we needed more than that. And the hospice agency um, essentially refused to send a nurse which I now understand is not legal. Hmm. Um, We got through it, but only because I was able to convince a local doctor to call in a script for me and the pharmacist, you know, the local pharmacist 
took pity on me and and gave me a bunch of extra. It's already such a stressful situation and that must have just magnified it. But thank you for writing about that and using that experience to tell others about what you need for a situation like that. Yeah. And, you know, like anything, you try to plan ahead and then there's the unexpected. And like Ludeline, the home health aide had helped me. We really did have the place outfitted as best as we could. I just hadn't thought about the comfort kit. I hadn't yet thought about the morphine. And because that had never been part of my experience before, my other loved ones who had passed away in a facility of some kind. Mm. And so this was my first time attending death at home. We ended up being able to create the death that Me Through wanted. I'd love to tell that story if you don't mind, because yes. it, 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 yes. um, it brings in something that, that I really believe is that I can't prove with any research or data. And that is that there's some magic in the universe. Mm. And I think a big part of creating the best life that you can is in acknowledging that there's magic in the universe, that you can't explain some mm. things. Near the end of Mitsu's life, he would sometimes slip into Japanese. And I would gently remind him that I don't speak Japanese, please mm. repeat it in English. And he also, because of um, his cancer, it was just really hard for him to articulate um, words at the end. But he was, one day he was really trying to say something. He just kept saying the same word over and over. Ho ji cha, ho ji cha. And the aide and I were at a wit's end. We thought, oh my God, this is his last words and we're missing it. And then he said, ho ji cha tea. And I was like, oh my God, the tea. So I ran to the cabinet, ransacked his tea cabinet, finally found a box that, by the way, and I have it, I'll send you a picture of it. The box doesn't even have Woji Cha. It's all Japanese characters. That's a box right there that you're this holding. Is the, yes. Wow. <laughs> so I looked inside. I mean, and by the way, he had like, I don't know, 40 different kinds of tea. And, and I looked into this box and found on the packet Hoji Cha. So I quickly made a cup of this tea and he couldn't really drink. And so I just brought a, a teaspoon over and gave him a mm-hmm. teaspoon of the tea and his head fell back on the pillow with a satisfied smile on his face. He just wanted a taste of his favorite tea Mm. one more time. Well, a few days later, his gaze had really turned inward and his breathing had become labored. And I knew because I had sat with my father at the end of his life, that this was probably near the end. He was showing all of the signs of being somebody who was dying, actively dying. And any of our listeners have sat with someone who's dying. One of the aspects of it, which people probably don't want to talk about, is that it can get pretty boring. Mm-hmm. You're, you're kind of sitting there, you're listening to your loved one breathing. You're not really sure how long this is going to go on. Sometimes it can be a few days. And I took a break and was just like paying some bills and listening to him breathe. And I was there, but I was not there. And I decided out of boredom that I would Google Hoji Cha tea. And I ended up watching a video about how the right way to prepare it. And I realized I prepared it wrong. And so I went back into the kitchen (laughs) 
And I did the whole tea ceremony the correct way, the Japanese way. And I brought him this cup of the right hojita tea. And he's breathing rhythmically. The windows are open. You can hear the bird song. It's otherwise very quiet. And I'm wafting the smell of the tea over his face. And I'm telling him that I prepared it the right way. And I'm just talking to him gently about the tea and how beautiful it smells. Mm. And he took one breath. And he took a second breath. And then that was it. And I cannot tell you why that morning, it was three days after I prepared the tea for him, many other things had happened. I cannot tell you why I had that sudden interest in learning how to make hojicha tea the right way. Mm. And I brought it to him and, and wafted the smell toward his face. And off he went into the universe. And it was magic. Thank you for sharing that beautiful story. There's so many pearls in our conversation, so many principles. Can you uh, summarize for the audience of some tips on how, in your experience of how we can design a healthier life? So the first thing that I would say is try to get access to the tools and information that you need to solve your own problems. And for me, that has included getting access to data, that has included getting access to information, but really that means getting access to each other, getting access to other people who can share wisdom and share experience. And that's my obsession in terms of peer-to-peer healthcare. But when I think about designing a healthier life, I think about designing your ideal death. Mm. And none of us know what the future brings. We, you know, we could get snatched by aliens. We could, you know, go over the cancer waterfall. We have no idea what's coming. But in a way, if you think about what you want at the end of life, you can design to live until you die, as BJ Miller would say. And that means exercise, eat right, build up your loving relationships so that you are not alone, mm. so that you do have people around you and are hale and hearty and bicycling to the grocery store into your late 80s. <laughs> Thank you for sharing the story of how you and Mitsu co-design his death. It was really an honor. Well, thank you for being on Design Lab. I've been wanting to have you on for so long and really, really appreciate you giving us your time and for sharing your story. My pleasure. You can find Susanna Fox on Twitter at S-U-S-A-N-N-A-H-F-O-X and read her awesome blog on her website, which is SusannaFox.com. Remember, sign up for our newsletter and reach out to me on social media. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Poglizzi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.